Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, this is going to be a fun one. Does the Bible oppress women? Yes. And no, but it kind of depends on what you mean by oppress and really with like what kind of cultural lens you're approaching the Bible with. And so I want to break down kind of our viewpoints into two different camps here. We have a radically individualistic viewpoint that most of us probably are very familiar with here in the West and Western cultures. And then we have a radically communal and dyadic cultural viewpoint that those who come from Middle Eastern, Asian, and ancient cultures would be more familiar with. So we are not, and they'll seem a little countercultural for anyone living in a Western culture. And then really the Bible offends both is kind of like the the point I'm going to get at here today. But we'll dive into some of the nuances here of how the Bible treats women, how the Bible treats marriage and wives, because that's also kind of different and weird. And there's Jewish rabbis that even disagreed with this. And so Jesus kind of spoke some stuff in his time that went kind of countercultural to, uh, especially those in the camp of Rabbi Hillel and Akiba, which I'll get to them in a minute. And so right off the bat, if we're going to take radical individualism, which in all fairness is a view that we have solely because Christ entered the world and because Christianity took over the Roman Empire and eventually influenced every civilization, especially every Western civilization since that moment in history. What our individualism says is it says, I have the right to choose my own destiny. I have the right to control my own life. Liberty is one of my highest values in this world. And the pursuit of happiness, sound familiar, is the thing that gives my life the most meaning, right? And that's, that is the, the anthem, that is the, the rally cry of our radical Western individualism. And it has its merits, and I'm not talking down about it. I do love that we are in an individualistic society, and I think that that gets played out in very wonderful ways. But I think that it does lead us to misunderstand other cultures and other societies, And I think it leads us to over-abuse compassion, no doubt, to assume that anyone different than us falls into one of two categories. There's the category, you know, for, for those that are overly compassionate and higher in neuroticism, you see the world as oppressors and victims, right? You see the world as good guys and bad guys. And there's, there's no in between. And that's something also very unique to individualistic cultures. And so part of that lens, especially the part of that lens that's more skeptical towards Christianity, looks at Christianity and tries to find fault in the stars of Christianity, as it were. Paul, no doubt, being one of those stars to find fault in, especially when he writes things like in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. But if a woman is not covered, let also her be shorn. 
But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, then let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man and the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So <laughs> it's like, whoo, what do we do with that one? Right? And to be honest, in researching this question, I, I approached it with bias. I approached it with kind of what I've always grown up hearing as a Christian and kind of what I've always experienced in church. The the typical evangelical Protestant answer to this is, no, of course the Bible doesn't depress women. The Bible sets women free, right? Jesus was the original feminist. And it's like, well, no, that's not necessarily true. And to be honest, if you approach it with radical individualism, the Bible sets no one free. The Bible oppresses everybody. Christianity oppresses men and women. And so this kind of brings me to my first point as to it depends on your view. And it's okay if you have a view that says the Bible oppresses women or the Bible oppresses everybody. You're more than entitled to have your own view (laughs) as a part of an individualistic society and culture. And I think to really understand this, I do need to go back to those rabbis I mentioned. So at the time that Jesus came to this earth, right, so around 0 BC or 0 AD, whatever, however you want to say it, (laughs) we'll call it, um, there were two kind of prominent rabbis that taught in Jerusalem, and they shaped the theological and political landscape for the Jewish people at that time. They were Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Shammai kind of gets coined the more conservative, more by the book, follow the rules kind of a rabbi. And Rabbi Hillel kind of gets named as the more liberal, the more uh, the rules are wide and can be bent and stretched a little bit rabbi. And so there's a, a conflict there. One of the main conflicts that they have, and, and the Pharisees bring this conflict to Jesus when they say, can a man get divorced for any reason, right? And, and that, that's the conflict that Rabbi Hillel and Shammai have with each other is their different views on divorce. You see, Rabbi Hillel said that a man could write his wife a certificate for divorce for any reason if he saw her talking to other men in the marketplace, if she made a bad comment about his parents, if he didn't like her cooking, if she talked back to him too many times, Rabbi Hillel says, write her certificate of divorce. If she questioned the teachings of the synagogue, write her a certificate of divorce. And and it, it goes both ways, actually. Uh, Rabbi Hillel also said that women could write men a certificate of divorce. Noted Jewish historian Alfred Edersheim writes on this dichotomy, and of those in the camp of Hillel, he says, on the other hand, the wife could insist on being divorced if her husband were a leper or affected with polypus or engaged in a disagreeable or dirty trade, such as that of a tanner or coppersmith. One of the cases in which divorce was obligatory was if either party had become heretical or ceased to profess Judaism. And so part of why Rabbi Halal did this, as other historians note, 
is because Rabbi Hillel valued a family unit, a family structure that followed proper Judaism and followed the laws of Moses as closely to the T as they could. And his viewpoint was, if one of those members of the husband or wife dyad doesn't follow Judaism, doesn't follow the teachings of Moses to the T, it's better to divorce them. Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, the more conservative, strict by the book rabbi, was actually noted by, by historians for being the defender of widows. You see, he most famously was one of the only rabbis that said, any testimony a widow gives in court is valid. And so you, you can see even there, right, that Rabbi Hillel is a little bit more culturally inclined away from individualism, and Rabbi Shammai is a little more culturally inclined towards individualism. And, you know, I think individualism does actually place more restrictions on people than a communal um, viewing of culture, but that's probably a conversation for a different episode. But that being said, Rabbi Shammai placed much, much, much stricter laws on divorce. He basically said that other than adultery, and several other circumstances of great degree, a man could not divorce his wife, and a wife could not divorce her husband. And so you can imagine with Jewish people which rabbi was more popular and prominent, and thus after Hillel taught a different rabbi uh, named Akiba, became a very prominent teacher, of whom we have records of his teaching and historians write in great detail about But given the context of the culture at the time, we, in our individualistic Western mindset, would actually probably find Hillel to be more oppressive towards women because it was men in that culture writing divorce certificates to women more than women writing divorce certificates to men. And, you know, let's be honest, in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, men did have more rights as Roman citizens or, you know, Roman subjects even than women had, and women still couldn't even own land. So in our individualistic mind, Shammai would be the one that would be less oppressive to women. But in the ancient dyadic communal mind, Shammai would be the one more oppressive to women. And, and it's like fair enough, because the culture then was very tribal. And, and that's evident, especially in the stereotypes we see in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, since those are the times that we're talking about where Samaritans are, you know, dirty dogs in the New Testament, where Gentiles are filthy and are fodder for hellfire, where Jews are saved and going to heaven simply for being Jews, right? There's stereotypical dyadic identifiers that people used and clung to in those times. And make no mistake, the Bible isn't for these stereotypes, but the Bible does use these stereotypes to get the point across. And so hear me out on this. The Bible does not empower women, and the Bible does not empower men, and it actually empowers nobody. It strips power from those that have it, right? It says, you're just as unclean as a Gentile. It says, you're just as much of a dirty dog and a sinner as your enemy, The message is that it pushes Christians to stop identifying with their group, with their dyad, with their family, and to identify as dead to their sins in Christ. Look, in that that culture, a woman's identity was wrapped up in, and not just a woman, I'll, I'll pause here, because everyone's identity was wrapped up in who they knew, right? If, if you were a man, your name was given, your first name, and then you were your surname was given in relationship to whose son you were, right? Or whose brother you were. And read the New Testament. I mean, read any part of the Bible, read any part of Jewish tradition, right? It's always 
James and John, son of Zebedee. Simon, son of Jonah. Your, your entire identity in the culture is based on the community around you. And it's, it's no different between men and women. However, there's a special component for women in that culture that includes childbearing. It's normal for women to bear children to their husbands in that culture and dishonorable for women not to. And, and that's kind of another difference then between a, a more communal dyadic relationship and an individual relationship with culture is in an individualistic relationship, there's no shortage of honor to go around. Radical individual integrity is the thing that gives you honor in an individualistic culture. However, in a dyadic communal culture, your honor is only compared to other people's honor. So you are more honorable than your brother or less honorable than your sister in this culture. And it's as if there's this like pool or yin-yang form of honor where there's only so much to go around and not everybody in that culture can have honor, can have nobility. And so therefore, women that can't bear children are seen with less nobility. And it would be pretty oppressive then in that culture to start a religion or to be a messiah and allow women to take part in the religious aspects of it. Allow women to learn. Allow women to teach. Because it, it robs them of the life of being a wife and a mother. And so if you're in a radically dyadic communal culture, then that's one part where the Bible's oppressive towards women. As opposed to if you're in a radically individualistic culture. And you see stuff like this. Like, like I just read in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm going to get to that here in a second. Where it says... Honor your roles. Spoiler alert, that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is getting at, and we'll get into the nuances here in a minute, but, but that's, that's the point of it. It says, honor the marriage roles. And okay, why is that? Well, you have to put it in context of the entire book of 1 Corinthians, right? Number one, it, it, it's offensive both ways, right? Because in verse 5 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions women prophesying and praying, right? Women having roles in this religious community in the church of Corinth. And so that's a little offensive to an extremely dyadic communal society where women are supposed to know their place. But then it's oppressive, it's offensive and oppressive to an extremely individualistic society where Paul puts women in a role. Paul puts men in a role too, but we don't necessarily think about that because again, heroes, bad guys, oppressors, victims, women are the victims because someone's got to be the oppressor and clearly it's evil, evil Paul, right? But read, read 1 Corinthians in context. Like, this church is pretty messed up. There's a dude having sex with his mother-in-law, I think it is, in, like, the second or third chapter of the book, and Paul's like, what the crap is going on? Corinth itself was a very, uh, it, was, it was a city full of debauchery, right? It was a very sexually immoral land. Prostitution was one of the main forms of worship of one of the goddesses of Corinth. And so you can make cases, right? Because obviously, like, <laughs> men can have long hair, and Samson had long hair. So, like, how does Samson fall into that, right? I, I don't know. God told him to, so contradiction, right? No, not really, because you can make inferences that when something applies in one culture, it doesn't necessarily translate to another culture, but it's in the Bible, so the principle should, though maybe not the entire practice. And, and here's the principle, right? Paul says, Jesus submitted to God. But Paul also said that Jesus was equal with God. So Paul says, women submit to men. But Paul also says that men are born of women and men need women. And so there's this idea. It's the same idea that Hillel and Shammai get at. It's both 
radically individualistic and, and radically dyadic and communal at the same time, but not to the extremes. It's to the balance of both. And so no matter where you look at this, the Bible's going to oppress women unless you can strike up a perfect balance of individual rights and liberties and a dyadic communal responsibility and role that we need to pick up. And that's always been the case in the Bible. There's Esther, the, the queen, right? And, and that story where she has to go out and, and become a queen and marry the king and have this, this heroic individualistic life only to come back and save her community. There's Ruth who does the complete opposite, who has to submit and take the form of, of a peasant and a servant and honor Boaz and give up all of her rights and give up everything and give up her community, give up her culture. She gives up her culture to follow Naomi. How in the face of individualism is that? Ruth abandons everything to go with Naomi. And then while she's there, she can't even start a life for herself. She just has to go be a peasant and, and basically the equivalent of begging, right? But it's just leaning the corners of, of, a, of a relative's feel, like not even some stranger. Like it's, it's someone in her family. And she has to like... <laughs> Go take this like bond servant poor role, and it's beautiful. And Esther's beautiful, but either way, those can be very offensive. And that wasn't even the start of it. Like Moses, Moses in the in the Torah in the first five books, told the Israelites to teach women and children how to read and write, and and how to teach themselves. Like like women were supposed to be teachers back then, which does bring up the question: Can women be pastors? And I think I'm probably gonna have to do a part two to this episode because this is going on a lot longer than I intended it to be but but Moses gives women uh, the the authority to read write and teach <laughs> in the middle to late bronze age show me any other culture that did that in the middle to late bronze age why because the individual woman matters but also because if you do that you train up the community the society and women function properly in their roles in the household and it's like fair enough I don't know. The Bible's kind of weird because it doesn't promise paradise for women, but it also never promises paradise for men, right? Like even back to Moses, he was supposed to go to the promised land and he never saw it. And so it's like, man, there's, there's a lot of unhappiness that can come out of the biblical text. Like there really is. And, and I wish I could give you something different. I wish I could give you a better answer and say, no, the Bible totally fits the modern feminist agenda or, you know, no, it flies in the face of, I don't even care. Like the Bible's just going to offend you. <laughs> like it's funny but he's not a woman but but on this talk of individualism versus this dyadic community mindset as, as to how to approach culture I, I can't help but think of joseph from genesis the son of jacob the the 11th son of jacob's 12 sons who has this dream and he's with his family and his whole identity is with his family and then they the brothers like try to kill him but then you know I forget if it's Judah or Reuben, but one of them's like, no, we, let's just like sell him off to slavery so we can make money that way. And so they do that and then he gets sent off to slavery. But then like God has favor on him in Potiphar's house and like he gets elevated uh, like to the, the number one servant in Potiphar's house. But then Potiphar's wife is like, hey, you're looking uh, and like come sleep with me. And Joseph's like, no, like that would dishonor God. And also my master Potiphar, who's treated me so well, I won't sleep with his wife. And then she like corners him and like tries to tear his clothes off and he runs out naked. And then she accuses him and he gets sent to jail. But then he interprets dreams, but then they forget about him. But then Pharaoh has a dream and I'm rushing through the story to get to the point, which is Pharaoh has a dream about years of plenty and years of famine. And Joseph interprets it. But the interpretation is interesting 
It's interesting to me that Egypt would not have had the mindset to save, to put reserves in their cattle, in their food. And, and I, I was like thinking, like, why is that interesting? You know, and, and it's like, it's because I live in America. It's because I have a 401k, right? It's because I, I understand investments. I understand savings. I understand not spending your entire paycheck as soon as you get it and not having this instant gratification mindset, which we accuse ourselves of having. But, but let's be real. Our individualistic culture is actually a culture that deeply understands sacrifice, deeply understands saving and investing and planning for some kind of future. The idea of retirement is an individualistic idea, not a dyadic communal idea. So what does that what does that mean? That means that there's a balance. That means that the entire world was was set up in these these communal like dyadic relationships and by that I mean where there's a husband a wife and that's a dyad that sets up in a family, a parent child dyad, right? Dyad means pair, but it's everything's defined on these like pairs of relationships. Everything's defined in relation to each other and God through Joseph in the first book of the Bible brings something that we're now very intimately familiar with in our, in our individualistic culture. And that's this idea of having storehouses for the future. That's this idea of planning for the future, right? And, and it's a deeply individualistic mindset because when, when your entire life is defined by your relationships and something happens to you or you get old and sick and need someone to take care of you, you don't worry about funding it yourself because you have all of your relationships to do it for you. But when you're an individual and that's how your identity is shaped and culture, you need to fund something yourself. Like if a woman has individual rights and is divorced from her husband or unfaithful or like, God forbid, right? Like she, she learns or, or becomes a prominent figure in a religious movement, you know, like Aquila's wife, Priscilla, right? Or like Deborah. Um, then it's like, if every woman does that, the society falls apart. And so in that regard, the restrictions don't oppress, but the consequences sure do. And they oppress much more than just women. They oppress everyone and they perhaps even crumble society, but not every society. And to the benefit of our individualistic society, the Bible does elevate women, not above men, but to actual equality with men. But the Bible doesn't preach individualism, right? And the Bible doesn't preach dyadic communal relationships. The Bible strikes a balance between both. Because on the one hand, God is a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, you're a unique individual that he formed in your mother's womb. And he called you by name and he had a plan and he had a calling for you. Like, like those are truths that we can find in various scriptures and texts in the Bible. That you're his workmanship. And so it's like... This, this balance then between we serve a God who's a community, who made us for community, but you're an individual, you're unique, you're his workmanship. There's a balance that's got to be struck, and, and the Bible doesn't hold back on it when it talks about men and women and their roles. And depending on how you want to look at it, it's oppressive. I saw, and forgive me for saying this because I hate these things because they're not profound, but I saw this Instagram reel of some speaker, he might have been a pastor or something, talking about that a moment in time where someone came to him with a question of, if I follow Jesus, do I have to stop smoking pot? And the pastor said, no. And so then, you know, naturally the person was taken aback. The audience was taken aback. Right. And, and he said, but he said something so great that I think applies here. Right. He says, you just like, when, when you 
get in the shower, do you got to clean yourself before you shower? And he's like, well, obviously, no, you don't. You get in the shower to get clean. And he's like, yeah, exactly. It's kind of what following Jesus is like. You just follow Jesus, and then it's it's a dyad. It's a relationship between you and him, and you and him to work that out. You and him to work out if you smoke pot or not, right? And it's a little simple, right? And I think that obviously for the mature Christian, there's reading, there's study, there's there's devotion and proper attention to doctrine that should take place. But the principle is right. And I think that's the proper way to look at the Bible and not get offended, is are you in a relationship with God or not? No doubt, question the Bible. Paul said, question the Bible. Paul said, question everything he said, right? Paul said, put everything to the test. And no doubt, that's the point of this podcast, question everything. But question your own view, question your own bias. Because if if you want a relationship with God and, and you want to love him, and it said something weird in here that that is countercultural and that at first blush you don't agree with, does it offend you? Bonhoeffer said it best. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that applies to women too. <laughs> there's, there's equality there. The submission that Paul talks about in Corinth, and, and, and I don't know the culture of Corinth. I, and yeah, there's a lot of sexual immorality in the church of Corinth that's talked about there, right? And so maybe it has something to do with that. But, but there's a level of submission where Paul says, women keep your heads covered. <laughs> but then he says, but, but man is subject to Christ. And so it's like, we got to ask ourselves, what if Christ said, men, keep your heads covered? Yeah, that'd be offensive to a Western individualistic culture. But if you've died to Christ, it's not. Or maybe it is. Heck, I don't know. But if you've died to Christ, you have a choice. Do you submit and define your identity based on the dyadic relationship between you and God, as well as the individual value and honor he places on you? Or you drum up your identity based off your culture, individualistic or communal, doesn't matter. And I think that could possibly be the difference between being oppressed and not oppressed. But I don't know. Let me know what you think. Hopefully I didn't defend too many people. <laughs> and as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.